Welcome, everybody, to Dead Talk Live. And tonight, we've got a very special guest, filmmaker Anthony de Blasi, writer, director, producer. How you doing, Anthony? Good. How you doing? Thanks for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. And I, I got to say, I don't even have to ask. You are a horror fan. And whenever I have true horror fans as my guest, I love that because we can just have a blast about it. So let's just start. I mean... Would you describe yourself as a lifelong horror fan? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I watched, I was like, my parents never said, oh, you can't watch that. You can't watch this. So I was watching horror movies. They were renting horror movies at a really young age, you know, when I was, you know, three, four, five, and six. My, you know, my dad is a bit of a horror fanatic. I remember Um, my first horror movie that I ever saw. It was Halloween. Uh, I think I was like five. And I remember there was, uh, before cable came to New York City, there was this service called WHT, where it, which only, came, it's a box, and it only came on at eight o'clock at night, and then it went offline sometime like at 2 a.m. in the morning. And that was yeah. my first taste ever in horror. I was like five or six. And those images of young Michael Myers putting on the mask in the beginning, opening the drawer, grabbing the knife. For you, at a young age, what, like, memories are, like, seared into your mind from a horror movie? Well, so, you know, well, my dad was big on the Universal Monsters movies. He's from, like, an older generation. So I definitely grew up watching those. But uh, Creepers, Mm. um you know when when that lady gets beheaded at the beginning of that film that yeah. was like the that's like the first movie and the like the bug the insect pit at the end that was like the first movie my dad rented when we had a VHS player so i was i was i don't i was young yeah um, i must have been like 5 or 6 and that movie just like seared into my brain and i showed my we watched it, my wife and i watched it recently because that movie has the weirdest plot line with yeah. this, like, with this chimpanzee. It's been years since I've seen it, but I've seen it. I mean, I, I forgot, and, I, you know, I'm giving away the spoiler, but essentially the chimpanzee is, like, the hero in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> so, so random. And it, when it happens, it was like, this is incredible. This is way better than I imagined it to be. So you grew up with the monsters like uh, Frankenstein and Dracula uh, yeah. like Bella Lugosi. My favorite Dracula from back in those days was Christopher Lee. Who was your favorite Dracula? You know, my favorite Dracula is probably Gary Oldman. But yes. you know, he... my dad, my dad is he's a huge Bella Lugosi fan. You know, yeah. um, I was more of like a Wolfman. You know, Lon Chaney and Creature from the Black Lagoon. I, I, I kind of lean towards the heavier effects movies yeah yeah me too i loved uh gary oldman in the 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 90s dracula man he nailed it oh my god he was amazing now your first credits really are from 2009's dread very successful movie uh audiences loved it it has very high scores great movie it's been a while since i've seen it so that was your first credit, and we know IMDb is not, you got to take it with a big grain of salt. I don't know if it's actually your first actual professional credit or not, but walk us through the process of getting Dread 
from writing it to actually getting it made and how hard was it to get it onto the screen? Well, you know, it was, so I'll, to say the credit thing, and this will, this lends to the answer because so, you know, my other credits were as uh, producing credits because mm -hmm. when I started, I started working with Clive Barker when I moved to LA and oh. that was just a, a uh, you know, one of those things. I had gone to school. So wait, so hold on. Clive Barker was your mentor, in a way. For ten years, yeah, I worked. Holy I worked shit! I, I'm sorry, but I met Clive Barker several times, and I heard the man speak at horror conventions. And yeah. I've described this to my audience before. He is a very normal-looking man, but when you hear him speak, the creative sheer almost disturbed imagination that this brilliant writer has he's so unique and such an amazing writer and filmmaker so i'm sorry i interrupted you go on no and speaker i mean you're right i mean when clive speaks you know you can you can almost see it written on the page right everything that comes out of his mouth i think he lives in that mindset but that's why so dread is his is his short story dread is um you know based on on the short story by the same name. So like doing that movie, I had already been producing with him. We did, you know, Midnight Meat Train and Book of Blood. And we did these other smaller movies like Saint Sinner and The Plague. I was like thrown into it at a very young age. And so I was writing a lot behind the scenes and kind of adapting his material. And, you know, cause I'm like, I, I, I was, I wrote and I wanted to be like, Hey, I have this, there's all these short stories here that aren't being adapted. And Dread was one of those stories we had at another studio. They wanted to make it PG-13. So when we got that back, I had written a draft that was very faithful to his short story, which was R-rated. And, and then I was kind of at that point where I had been with him and they knew I wanted to direct. So it was like, hey, I want to direct this film. So it was actually a very easy process. I was surrounded by very, um, very trusting producers. I was blessed that way. Now, uh, do you look back now uh, and say you've had 10 years experience working under Clive Barker and learning from one of the most creative horror minds out there? Do you still keep in contact with Clive? Yeah, we do. We still talk. Um, you know, we email and stuff and, and he's writing a lot now. And yeah, I mean, that was just, I, I you know, I don't, you can't trade that for anything, no. right? I mean, all those years under someone like him and, and working so closely with him, it was, you know, it sculpted my career and my approach to filmmaking. That's a that's an honor right there. I did not know that, and that is just absolutely fascinating. Is there a particular subgenre in horror that you're attracted to the most? You know, it's funny because I don't make movies like I like to watch movies, which I I don't know why. I think it's something I need to reconcile in my brain because the movies that I really like to watch are more movies like lost boys and fright night and american werewolf in london and love those and, you know like these creature movies that have a lot of effects because really it was the effects that really is why i loved horror i wanted when i was younger i wanted to get into special effects and special effects makeup 
And then, you know, you kind of are like, oh, I like to write and direct and then it becomes something else. But it's those kinds of movies that I always revisit every, you know, every Halloween and, and things like that. It's those kind of films that I, I love. Okay. All right. Now, going back to Clive Barker for a second, uh, were you with him? I mean, I think it must have been after that he had done Hellraiser, correct? Yeah, it was after. It was, it was after he had not been making movies for quite a while. When I started working with him, he was writing this children's book series called Aberat. And, and then we were trying to reinvigorate his film side. So he had already been out of it. You know, he Lord, Lord of illusions was in the nineties. I didn't start working with Clive until 2002. Oh, okay. So it's way, way after Hellraiser and Nightbreed. Yeah. Uh, but I'm sure you've seen his movies and stuff. What do you think oh. of his style of filmmaking? I think Clive was always like a true auteur. Even the few movies he made, he had a very distinct style. If you watch like Hellraiser mm-hmm. and Nightbreed mm-hmm. and Lord of Illusions, you can see that thing that kind of comes out of them, similar to like John Carpenter or you know, Scorsese. Yeah. He's, they have that identity in their filmmaking. Yeah, very unique. You can watch it like you just said and know that it's a Clive Barker film. Yeah. Now, I hear a lot of people say that the horror genre is underrated. It's not respected. I don't really see that. I, I, I see horror being at its peak right now. But I think to some degree, uh, horror people in the horror industry like to sort of hold on and latch on to that theory that our genre is not very appreciated it's underrated yeah. and it's sort of used as a tagline even though horror is i would say one of the top three most popular genres out there right now what how do what are your thoughts on that yeah i i totally agree i think like you know i think we're in a very mainstream era of horror mm-hmm. and but with places like shutter there's so many new films on there. There's so much horror being made and good stuff. Mm-hmm. It's not like, but then you also have people packing the theaters to see horror. You know, it's doing very well. I mean, I think you're completely right. I think like, obviously fans, we like to think that like, you know, Hey, I have this VHS coffee copy of, yeah. you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And like, it's crazy. It's going to blow your mind. Like, let me show you this thing. You know, you like to cure. I think horror fans are curators in that way. We, yeah. we want like, we want to share that experience with someone. Oh, you've never seen this movie. You have to like, yeah. you have to see this movie. It's, it's like a rite of passage. I totally, I totally get it. Now, independent movies are vital, not only to horror, but to the entire entertainment industry. What, how do you feel about the impact in indie movies have in the entertainment industry and in particular, the horror industry? I mean, I think, you know, indie film is, extremely important you know in things like horror and drama um i think that's where a lot of filmmakers actually you know they it's where they make their marks they just start their careers but it's they you you know you can also do a lot more and control the content right you can you can be edgier you can be you can push the boundaries in independent filmmaking where you, if you're doing like a studio picture or a bigger budget picture, I, you can't really do that. Yeah. And you have yeah. a lot of input from a lot of different people. 
Now, uh, you've done independent films, correct? Uh, you know, For sure. What is, let's say someone comes to you, and let's say they're writing or they have a great script. Uh, I love hearing filmmakers, uh, writers, directors, when I talk to them, and they all have their own advice to people who actually want to make a film. Uh, the latest, I forgot who it was, said that make sure you have the whole thing planned out from start all the way to post-production and then working your way to a distributor. What advice would you give somebody who is looking into making a film? You know, I think there's so many different paths and it's hard. I think the first thing you do, if you don't have finances, then just make a short, you know, do whatever you can to put something together to make a short. I didn't really start making shorts. I've made a few shorts throughout my career, but I, it's not where I started, you know, in college and stuff I did, but I think it's funny. Like the, I think the more you make movies, you kind of feel like you're in a box more and more. You feel like, you know, Oh, I need a certain budget or I need to write it a certain way, or I need to, you know, do it to a certain level. And you have to almost forget that mindset. I think to be a new filmmaker, you can do anything. Yeah. As long as you can be creative and you can make anything. Also in horror, horror fans will accept anything. You can go shoot a movie on an iPhone. If it's told well and it's scary, you know, yeah. people will watch it. Yeah. People will watch that movie. Um, so you can almost, you can make a movie with no budget. You just got to do it, you know. But you also got to write. I think you got to write and you, or, or make friends with a writer so you can tell a good story. If you're not a writer yourself, be friends with writers and get a good script. You know, I, I wouldn't just say, Hey, let's throw a camera on and shoot no, something. No, absolutely. I say, uh, to, you know, my opinion is if you've got a great script, uh, even if you have a zero budget, uh, if, if the script is there and you can find the right actors to bring that script to life, you can make it happen on a very low budget. And especially in horror, uh, yep. which you can do it very, very cheaply. Now, um, Going back to your college days, did you go to college and you study filmmaking or is that something that happened later on for you? No, I did. I went to uh, Emerson College mm -hmm. in Boston um, where I grew up and they, they have a, a pretty big school in Los Angeles now, too, but they didn't at the time. But yeah, so I studied film. Uh, at Emerson, Emerson was excellent for that because they you they really just gave you the equipment, let you taught you know you you were you were making movies and you were getting your hands dirty along the way. So you know I recommend that school. Okay. Now, did you <laughs> but, know like from high school or even before that this is what you wanted to do? Whether it was writing, directing, but filmmaking is what you wanted to do. For sure, at a very young age. I I mean I remember being you know, like six years old and watching Star Wars documentaries, right? Like on PBS, like you get the behind the scenes, the yeah. model making and stuff. I always wanted to get into movies because my, my father is a movie fanatic. He grew up wanting to get into movies and never did. It was kind of that thing like, oh, you know, oh, I had a dream and I never did it. So it was like I at a very young age wanted to get into film and 
kind of pursued that relentlessly for a long time. And it paid off. It paid off. Now, I let's go into Last Shift. I think I watched it again the other night for what I believe was like around the fifth time. I love that movie. It's a great story. And it's really, in essence, a one-character story. Yeah. Um, so what was the inspiration? Because you wrote it. What was your inspiration for writing Last Shift? I made a couple movies with these producers in Florida and uh, Scott Poiley, who is, he's the co-writer on last shift. We, he was the producer uh, and he produced a movie called Casadega. I did and a movie called missionary that I did. I did not write either of those. And we had made those two movies and I had said to him, Hey, I have this idea to do something really contained that we have this excellent sound team that we got to know really well. And I felt like we weren't taking advantage of them. I wanted to make a movie that was very sound driven, very, you know, like a, Mm -hmm. like a fun house horror ride. You know, you just, you just get on, you hold on for 90 minutes and you're out and you're just, you scare them as much as you can in that Mm -hmm. amount of time. So that's what I approached them with. And we started to develop it and, you know, talk about how do how do we utilize sound? Where would we want to be? And it when we were writing, we were location scouting at the same time. So it really molded what we were writing, mm-hmm. how what the police station was going to look like, who the character was going to be, um, and and that's how it started. We always wanted to do something that was like a kind of a Manson esque inspired ghost story. Yeah, and you know, it it evolved into the into last shift it's a great movie and like i said i was watching it again the other day knowing that you would be on the show and i'm like okay uh, i find myself analyzing movies more and more these days like what makes this so special well a it's scary as shit it's a it's a really scary movie the casting is great and now let's go to joshua michael who was our guest uh last year he plays uh, the deceased cult leader, uh, Payman. Uh, yeah. Now, I assume you had control of casting. Uh, did you cast uh, Joshua? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, now, we did all our casting in in Florida. Okay. Now, Joshua uh, gets picked to play these bad attitude characters okay i don't know if it's just uh, the looks that he has the long hair the bad boy look uh what made you go with joshua who you know you know him i've met him too he cannot be furthest from that in real life he's like one of the nicest guys you will ever meet but he does a great job at portraying these prick characters i guess for lack of a better term and and in last shift he was a cult leader so what did you see in joshua that you said you know what he's going to be payment well you know he's got that charm he's got that like redneck charm right and and that's kind of what we were looking for with with that character and he it was funny because he was probably one of the youngest people that came in for the park because we were seeing a lot of older characters for you know you're thinking like oh is he um you know is he that more distinguished kind of father figure but when he came in he really embraced that kind of younger manson persona yeah is that i mean he really does when he talks he kind of draws you in i think that was a big part of it because he had a lot of 
when he's on the camera, when he's talking to you, you know, he really is. He if he's not a charming character, you won't believe that he's some cult leader. Yeah. Yeah. And as we see in real life, almost every cult leader is as charismatic and make you can make can sell ice to an Eskimo type of a person. Yeah. Uh, now, there are characters throughout the movie that come and go. Uh, some questions. In the beginning of the film, we see when uh, Officer Cohen comes into the station that it's it's its last night. Uh, they're turning off the lights on the old station and they're all moving to the new station. And she meets the sergeant, I believe, who's throwing yep. a fit. And then we don't see him again till the end where Officer Cohen has been just put through the ringer and his uh, payment, who is a ghost, spirit, whatever you want to call him, is making her see things. What is the uh, the sergeant's character? You Well, first of all, do you think that the, uh, the police force that was there since the incident happened, the, the suicide that took place in that jail, did everybody there know that it was haunted after that event? Yeah, I mean, we kind of saw it that w way that, you know, it's hard for people like the police to admit like, oh, I'm afraid to be in this police station, right? And we, I think that was something that comes up in a conversation later that that place was haunted, but nobody wanted to talk about it, right? We just wanted to get out of there. And, you know, with Grip Cohen at the beginning, the sergeant, he's, when she enters the building, he's like freaking out at the end of the hall. He's banging on the lockers. He's angry and agitated. Mm -hmm. And to, to us, that was like, he just had an account, you know, he's dealing with these things too. He's in the building alone. He's seeing things and it angers him, you know, when he sees something. So when he's, he's, she just walks in and he's pissed, he's banging these lockers. And then he's very, who are you? Yeah, and he, you, know, you notice when he approaches her, he tells her to turn around. And she you walks know, away. And he's like, "Stop!" Yeah, and he wants to get like a three sixty view of her, and that was a foreshadow of that scene later with with the other officer that is ah, ghost. He wanted to see if she was real. Yeah, exactly. Oh, okay. Now that makes a whole bunch more sense. And then we see as the movie progresses the. Uh, the officer who comes in, who we find out is dead. He has a big hole in the back of his head. He's the one that reveals to Officer Cohen, Lauren, the character Lauren, that um, ever since that suicide, this place is haunted. So he's yeah. sort of, that officer is sort of warning her that, hey, not everything here is safe. And I love how that was added. She was, it, it didn't, that information was not passed on to her by a fellow living officer was passed on to her by a ghost. Yeah, we thought it would be fun to do a scene. You know, it's like, you know, lots of movies have these reveals like, oh, that person's dead, you know, oh, that, you know. But we were like, well, what if this guy's actually a, a character? You know, what if they have a really meaningful scene together? Yeah. <laughs> and, and almost even a flirtation at times. And then he leaves <laughs> and he's like, shit, this guy's dead. He's got a big hole in the back of his yeah. head. Uh, now, Juliana Harkavy, who's going to be our guest on Tuesday, she plays uh, Officer Lauren Cohen. Uh, she did a fantastic job. She bore, she basically bore the weight of the whole movie on her shoulders. Uh, when it came time to cast uh, Officer Cohen, 
Was it difficult for you guys to find the right person? Did you go through a lot of people before finally uh, settling on Juliana? Juliana, uh, you know, we did, you know, we had known Juliana. We met her when we were uh, auditioning for another film. And we brought her up specifically. It was either Scott or I who was like, what about Juliana Harkavy? Let's see if she wants to do it. You know, simultaneously, you're always covering your boundaries. You know, we were casting in Los Angeles. We were doing tapes and self-reads and stuff like that. Um, But we basically offered Juliana the part. I mean, I do not remember us even reading her. Mm -hmm. She made Mm -hmm. she may debate that. So so I may be wrong, but I don't remember auditioning her for the role. I'll ask her on Tuesday. She could act. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, she went on to achieve after last year so much success and is still so successful. She became a big part of the DC Arrow universe. Yeah. Uh, She's a great actress. And uh, you guys could not have picked a better person to take on such a heavy role. It was really a one character movie. I mean, yeah, we had people come in and out. And then, of course, the ghosts in the cell that made it so scary but she bore the whole weight of the movie and she did a great job and a lot of credit to her now you had said in a previous interview that you wanted to push the boundaries of what you can do with the whole sound that you mentioned a little while ago what are some of the ways you experimented with sound what different techniques did you try and see which would work the best like if someone is watching the movie, which scenes would you tell them, hey, pay attention to this part right here? Well, so, you know, it's an interesting journey with the sound. And I there's obviously the stuff you get to in post-production where you try to, you know, we you mix on an excellent. We had access to an excellent stage. You mix in, you know, the movie is really meant to be seen in a theater. We mm-hmm. mixed for you know, a seven one surround and, and there is excellent surround sound in it. So there's all that part of it where a scene that's the scene that's completely in the dark when she's stuck in the cell and the lights go out, mm-hmm. the sound mm-hmm. of the design in that scene is what carries the whole thing. But what I say, why it was so important, the sound design element and why we put so much emphasis on it was in pre-production. So I had this, we had this, abandoned police station where we shot and both in pre-production we had the sound team come out and essentially go around the entire building and record sounds they would just fuck with stuff they Mm -hmm. would mess they would create eerie sounds with the textures of the actual building we shot it uh we did all the singing there all the girls singing you know in different stages and then and then the day after we finished production shooting, we went in there and we almost directed like a stage improv with sound design. The sound team set up mics all over the building, all at the same time. We had like 10 or 15 mics going at any given time. And we improv scenarios with these actors creating all these, you know, scary voices and attacking the you know the payment family attacking these girls and it was a a day of improv of sound design so when i was editing the movie i could 
pull from this entire library of sound we made. I could I could I could create a soundscape uh, while I was editing the film of like, oh, this is what she hears. This is how she hears it. And we have all these different voices. I could curate everything that we recorded. And then in post, then the sound team took it and actually did the real work, you know, yeah. they, but, but it was all laid out from such a long process from pre-production that, that every sound in that movie is recorded, yeah. is recorded in the location. That is so cool. And I called her Lauren, I got screwed up. Her character's name yes. is Jessica Cohen. Um, and I totally see it now. And it's very noticeable in the movie when it comes to the sound, like when the air conditioner ducks, uh, the air conditioner starts blowing and the, and these bangs that when uh, the character of Jessica looks up, it appears it's just rusty pipes, old pipes. Um, and yeah, you know, as a person who, you know, Jessica doesn't at that point really, we don't think she believes in ghosts, you can easily write it off as old. It's an old building. It's being closed down. It's just a building making its strange noises. Now, throughout the movie, when you were directing it, was there any sequence that was challenging? Like when she was locked in that cell in the dark, uh, which was really freaky. She drops her flashlight. All of a sudden, she picks somebody picks up the flashlight, and she's like really starts freaking out she gets locked yeah. in there what sequence was uh challenging for you to you know direct and actually shoot the one that was the most challenging and I, listen i don't know why it just turned out this way is the, the thing we call the chair sequence yeah she enters that i mean it's complicated because we have there was a lot of coordination with the the videotapes and the she's watching these three tvs on the wall and the payments are essentially talking to her and they're saying different things in different TVs. And then the chairs, you know, there's things riding the chairs and they're spinning around. And, you know, we wrote the sequence and we're like, how do you know, we wanted to make it scary. We shot that over. We ne could never finish it. So we we kept because we were essentially in this one location, we could stop a scene and then come back to it. We came back to that scene like four times. We can just never get it done. So so it was shot over the course of the entire schedule. We keep going back to the scene. Oh, let's go back to the chair scene. We're not done with it yet. <laughs> That's funny because one of those, that chair scene, uh, we actually, I actually had it as a question. I was going to ask you about that, if that was, you know, particularly hard to shoot. And obviously it was. Now, in the end of the movie, let's just jump to the end. Uh, this woman has been put through the ringer like i mentioned earlier uh and the the payment ghost she starts hallucinating not hallucinating they start making her see these uh hazmat people who are supposedly coming in to pick up the hazmat material she starts seeing them as the ghosts and that's when the uh superior officer comes in the sergeant has to shoot her to take her down uh, how exactly did you come up with that concept when you were putting the script together? Um, like, this is how, you know, we should end the film. You know, I, I don't remember entirely. I know that in the writing process, we wanted to have, it wasn't something we planned from the get-go. I think while we were writing, we, 
I honestly think we had these characters, this hazmat crew, and then decided, you know, at the end when we were writing, well, these people, sometimes things happen like that. These kind of B stories fall into yeah. place. You're like, these people say they're coming. So how about they come? And, and by this point, she's so far gone. She's so far broken in the sense that, is it in her head? Is this place haunted? Is she, you know, is she possessed by this point that she doesn't know what she's seeing anymore? And, you know, that kind of twist at the end that she killed these people, hopefully has a big impact and people don't see it coming. I really love that. We shot that whole sequence. We did in one take. Wow. Where she's, you know, it, we, it was one of those things we choreographed every moment of it and we had live fire and, and, um, and, you know, when you watch it, you can see when she's shooting the gun, all the particle board is is falling down. It's mm -hmm. like the dust raining down on her, you know, because it was all staged in this one. You know, our Austin, our DP, did a great job in that sequence. You know, we had no lights. It was her with a flashlight mm -hmm. and us timing these these kills. And, you know, what we did in that sequence is that we pre-painted the gore. So the, the makeup team, the effects team put the gore on the wall, you know, and then the person would have to be exactly in that spot and stage the, you know, the kill shot. Yeah. And then in post, we painted it out, you know, so when she'd go down the hall, we painted the blood out. And then when he gets shot, we reveal the gore because yeah. we didn't do CG blood. We wanted to do real blood. That's so that's how it did. That's pretty cool. Uh, so you're definitely a fan of practical effects as opposed to CGI. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I you know, CG is, you know, what's a kind of a bummer as a lot of movies, I think, you know, you look at a movie like The Tomorrow War. Mm -hmm. It was a fun film. Very fun. But you look at the creatures and they're all CG and they look great. But then you look at, I don't know if you've seen the actual creatures like, no. uh, you know, I keep seeing them in my Instagram feed. I think spectral motion effects did them and they're incredible. They're, they're so cool. And you're like, why wasn't that in the movie? Because it has a life to it. Yeah. And the you know, a lot of these guys, they make these incredible creatures and then they all get replaced with VFX later, which is kind of a bummer. I love the name they gave those creature, the, uh, the white hooks or the, what are they called? Yeah. The the white yeah. yeah white spears white, white hook something like that that was crazy something with a hook or a dart yeah and speaking of creatures i saw a quiet place too the other night i finally got yep. a chance to see that have you seen that yet yeah yeah we saw when it came out what do you, we got a, a a better look of the aliens in the second movie than we than the quick glances we got in the first movie uh very unique creative uh, yeah. what'd you think of those creatures being a, I being a monster those. fan? Yeah. I love those creature designs and also the, 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 the heads, especially right. Is yeah, where all it opens, where it opens. I mean, they have that kind of resident evil design, mm -hmm. but, but they take it to this new level with the, the head design. And, um, you know, I've never seen, I would love to see, I wonder if they did practical on those sets. Cause I'd love to see if they did practical creatures I bet they exist. I'd yeah, love to see. There were, yeah. I, I'm leaning. I mean, there might have been some practical, but man, those uh, they were very. Some of those in scenes, especially where it's crawling and like walking upside down on that elevated platform, yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, those were those were scary creatures. They could move yeah. quickly. They're absolutely terrifying. Now, last shift, you mentioned in a prior interview that you guys shot it in 10 days. Uh, was that strictly because of budgetary constraints? Or was that just enough time that you guys had to do a film, which, like you said, was contain, contained in one location? Well, so, like, when I'm making a movie... My motto is like never put anything in front of the camera that doesn't look good, right? Because you know people have expectations for when they go see a film, and you're you're controlling this little box. <clears throat> and what I wanted to do, because we were making that movie on a very low budget, and I know that if I cut my days, I'm going to have more money to put on the screen. So that's that's what we did. You know, we we condensed the schedule so much that we could take those extra days of shooting and put that money into each day that we had. And, you know, at the beginning it was kind of a spitball number. We were like, let's do it. I, I mean, honestly, I, we said this schedule from the, almost the, one of the earliest days we talked about, Hey, we're before the script was written. I said 10 days. Okay. And, and we stuck with that number probably because my, you know, producer held me to it, but, but, <laughs> But, you know, it was an educated guess at how much, like, how many days can we do this in? Okay. And 10 days was the number, and we stuck with it. And it worked out. Now, uh, I don't remember because I did not see the movie uh, right away when it came out. Did it have a theatrical release, or did it go straight to Blu-ray DVD? It did. In the States, it was a Blu-ray streaming release. Okay. Uh, I mean, it did... Um, we played like Fright Fest in London, but it it was mainly I don't know if it played any theaters here when it first came out. Were you very pleasantly surprised on how well it was received by viewers and they loved it? Definitely. We were very happy. You know, we were you know, it's 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 always that thing when you set out like I wanna make a scary movie when you say we want to make this as scary as possible and we want to freak people out. And, yeah. and we felt like we got that response back that people were, it, you know, if they say anything about the movie, they say, well, it scared me. So that's good. We did our job. Yeah. Yeah. That's the whole point of a horror movie. Now the whole payment storyline, not as for a sequel, but more as a prequel, you could have really run with that. Uh, is it, a, you just didn't want to do it. You wanted to leave the movie alone as it is and not, you know, mess with a prequel. Were you approached about a possible sequel, prequel? Or how did that play out, if it played out at all? We, you know, early in the early days, Scott and I talked about doing a prequel when we kind of batted it back and forth for a while. And I think that we just got busy writing other things and doing kind of other things that we never went back to it. But never say never is okay. what I'm saying now. All right. All right. I think it would be great. And I'm sure Joshua would be game for that, too. Bring him back as a payment. That would be awesome. Now, uh, when Jessica is in her biggest moments of distress in the movie... She is reciting like the policeman's motto. Uh, why is that? Why is that so important? Uh, is it uh, a tribute to her dad, who was also a cop? 
and I believe he, he died in the line of duty, is and it basically is what keeps her in the building as opposed to a, abandoning her post and getting the hell out of there. And that's the big thing of it. I think when people watch horror movies, especially haunted house films, right, there's always that thing that the writers and filmmakers have to get around. Why do they stick around? Yeah. You know, the why. Why do they stay? Why do they, if it's a movie that, you know, and a lot of it comes down to a simple thing is like financially, they can't leave. Um, but you always have to, your audience has to do that buy-in of like, why does she stay? And we want to do something I, payment is all about devotion, right? His devoted followers. We wanted that to be the same with her. She's devoted to something her father died for. Yeah. You know, that that oath of being uh, a police officer, she is taking it, you know, all the way. And there's that pressure from her peers too. You know, are you going to be the real deal? Are you going to be as good as your father was? You know, are she's getting some shame along the way from the sergeant and things like that. Like, are you, you telling me you're afraid of some noises in a building, stuff like that. But it really is that devotion to her father of wanting to make him proud. That's why she sees this through to the end, and which it, is essentially her Achilles heel. Yeah. And in the beginning of the movie, just before she goes into that station, you have the opposite of that. You have her mother calling her and telling her this is a bad idea. You know, I don't feel comfortable with this, uh, you know, but she wants to stay loyal and devoted to what her dad did. And she wanted to follow in his footsteps. So I love the little irony there, like the phone call from the mom and the events of that night and the hell that she's being put through she still wants to stay true to her dad uh one scene that was very touching was when she opens up his locker and finds mm -hmm. the picture of uh her dad and herself as a little girl um, how important do you think that was to the script yeah i think that was a really big moment and and you know even though a movie's scary or it's a horror movie i like you know scott and i both like movies that had that emotional hook to it uh, something that you know when she's having this moment where she finds this photograph and it, it's a good way to just tell people what it what kind of relationship she had with her dad and how she feels about it now and then when you go to that scene that juliana knocked out of the park mm -hmm. when she's getting a phone call from her father Oh, yeah. And she's, you know, hearing her father's voice again. You know, you really believe that moment. You know, she's essentially, I, you know, I did it for you. And it's, it's kind of heartbreaking. I mean, her performance is heartbreaking it in that is. moment. She was great. Now, when uh, you, when you were, uh, were doing the research on how you wanted to portray the, the payment and the cults, uh, the, his cult, it was almost spot on identical to the whole Manson family that happened. Did you look into other cults in real life and draw any inspiration from other cults or did you concentrate solely on Charles Manson and what he and his followers did? I'm, you know, we, we looked at a lot of people like, um, Richard Ramirez, mm -hmm. you know, not a leader, but we were looking at a lot of like, 
serial killers at the beginning. Um, you know, watching a lot of footage from them. And then a lot of the cult stuff, I think, basically was centered on the Manson family's behavior. You know, I got my hands on this great documentary called Manson, which was released when he was in prison. Mm -hmm. And the movie won an Academy Award, but it never got released because of one of the, you know, I think it was, I can't remember, it was Twiggy or one of the other members tried to assassinate the president or, you know, I don't know, you yeah. know, attempt an assassination on the president. And because of that trial, they couldn't release the movie because she was in the movie to such a large extent. So it got old, but it was still nominated for an Academy Award that year. I did not but know that. You can watch it. You can get it on like you can get it on Amazon. Literally, when I ordered it, it came from one of the former members of the Manson family. It, wow. was, it was like made by that person and they sent me a DVD of it and it you know he signed it and stuff he was he was making he was just he distributed this this movie himself it's an excellent film that's fascinating i'm going to check that out now moving forward in your career uh is there anything in the works do you have a bunch of stories that you're trying to get picked up what's in store for you uh moving forward now you know, for the last several years, been doing a ton of writing and also other genre stuff. My wife and I have been writing together. So we're at that point now. There's a lot of percolating things yeah. that are about to come into fruition. But, you know, I was I had jumped out of the genre for a bit to do some other things. And then my wife and I concentrated on some thriller stuff. So it's been a long time since I've been in kind of the horror mm -hmm. realm writing but I, but just now scott and i are actually writing something together that's that's going to be horror so cool cool and is uh everything that you're working on is going to go through the independent film uh circuit through festivals and stuff like that when it does get made some yes some no okay okay i can't, I can't announce yet no 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 don't want to <laughs> don't want to spoil any secrets uh, that's really fascinating. Looking back on your career, uh, which, whether it's a writing, directing project, uh, which one do you look back on with the most, you know, proud feelings, you know, that you're, you're the proudest of? Definitely Dread and Last Shift. And, you know, those are both movies that I wrote or co-wrote, you know, both had, I, there's a, it's a much different process when you, direct a movie that you've taken from the writing stage, you're so intimate with it and you're so close to the material. It becomes second nature when you're directing and you can be on your feet more when you're doing it and be more, I like to improv a lot. Mm -hmm. and I think you can do that more with your own material. Um, yeah. And you know, those are two films that I'm, you know, really proud of. I've spoken to a lot of writers who have directed their stuff and I always say to them, man, it must be so, I guess, liberating to have the work that you wrote and to be able to see it through the vision of putting it on the screen. You know, you wrote it and now you have the control of how you want to present it to the audience. 
do you yeah. feel do you feel that's i mean that's completely awesome i th i've never done it obviously but it sounds like it would be completely amazing yeah yeah and I, I'm, listen i feel like when you're directing when you're in the moment you can't appreciate it because you got like like you're you you got your like directing hat on yeah but then you know i think when you're watching the footage later you're like oh yeah we we wrote those words we created that character we we you know worked with the actors to to create those characters and you know you or we made that horror gag and it worked you know like it's like a magic trick right yeah. it's like i invented a magic trick when you create a a horror gag that works well now it's for like those for uh, our viewers who have not yet watched last shift i just saw it the other night but you, i have so many streaming channels and i I start a movie and I'm like, where, which channel am I watching this on? Where is Last Shift currently available besides people renting and buying it on places like Vudu and Amazon? Is there a place where it's streaming as part of a subscription service? You know, I think it just went on Tubi. I th okay. Someone just posted this the other day, but I think it just went up on Tubi. Um, but it's it's not on Shutter or Netflix at the moment. No, I mean um, I purchased it on Vudu, so I know that's where I saw it. I own it yeah. on Vudu. On Tubi right now, and it may be, you know, it's like I don't, it's, I never know unless someone like says it, and it's like, oh, okay, it's on there, and then I'll like promote it. But it's like, you know, people they don't tell you, no. you know, it's not the distributor. Years later, is like, hey guys, this is where it's going now. No, no. nobody lets you know. You just kind of find out when everyone else does. I, you know, I know that personally because I have a distributor now. All of my shows are going to Screenbox, and yeah, we're always right. the last ones to find out. Yeah, the last ones to find out. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> like, I know this show is premiering in a couple of weeks next in early August, but I have no idea when, and I'm probably yeah. not going to find out till I read it somewhere on the internet. But yeah. it's just really funny. Uh, last question before we got to go. But how did you find uh, working with and directing Juliana as an actress? She's absolutely talented, uh, great actress. How did you find working with her? Uh, you said you, you sort of knew her. You didn't really audition anybody else. How was it you're like? You're just asking that because she's coming on. You're just you're you want a good soundbite. She was horrible. No. <laughs> Uh, no, she's obviously a fantastic actress. I mean, to yeah, the fact that we met her, she was like too young to play the part that we were casting in the other movie. And when she when we did this, the fact that we remembered, you know, and she was the thing is, is we were casting, you know, we were auditioning people in Los Angeles, but we were there were actors that were in the area, either in North Carolina and Florida that were she was clearly a stronger actress yeah. and, uh, and now you see like where her career's gone. Right. So she's gotten so much work because, because to carry a whole movie like that, essentially it's a stage play. It is. I mean, you have, there's not like one second she's not on camera. Right. And it's also exhausting to shoot in, in a 10 day period. So, you know, not only was she a trooper on set, she's a great actress and can do, you know, did every, Thing I asked with emotion wise and stuff. She's yeah. and, and she's she is excellent, and I'm really looking forward to talking to her on Tuesday. We're going to get deeper into her take 
and what it was like for her to be in that room in the dark and how that all played out and her feelings. So I'm really looking forward to talking to Juliana on Tuesday. Anthony, it's been an absolute blast talking to you. Uh, like great. I said, I love talking to, you know, true horror fans and especially filmmakers. And, you know, it's been an honor. And I want to thank you so much for coming on our show and sharing your experiences. And we look for we look I'm very much looking forward to seeing a lot more of your stuff coming on the screen uh, very thank soon. So love you, thanks for having me. Absolutely. This has been a a great conversation thank you again i want to thank all of our viewers for tuning in we have a quite a nice audience tonight and you know when you have a good conversation going uh, anthony because the chats go silent that right. means everybody's listening <laughs> good. Good. good so anyway guys thank you for tuning in thank you to anthony for being our guest tonight till tomorrow night guys and like i said juliana who uh who plays Officer Lauren in Last Shift is going to be our guest right here on Tuesday night. So you guys want to definitely tune in for that. Thank you to Anthony de Blasi for joining us. Any final thoughts before we go? I mean, I'll be tuning in on Tuesday. I'm going to see what it says about me. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. we got to watch out. Anybody, everybody stay safe. And until tomorrow, stay walking. Good night.